I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. This week, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in California versus Texas, the Affordable Care Act case. On today's episode, we'll recap the oral argument and explore whether or not the ACA will survive its latest legal challenge. I'm joined by two of America's leading experts on the Affordable Care Act and the Constitution. Abby Gluck is a professor of law and faculty director of the Solomon Center for Health, Law, and Policy at Yale Law School, as well as professor of internal medicine at Yale Medical School. She's the author of many works, including The Trillion Dollar Revolution, How the Affordable Care Act Transformed Politics, Law, and Healthcare in America. She filed an amicus brief on behalf of the petitioner, California, in the case. Abby, it is wonderful to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me, Jeff. It's great to see you again. And Ilya Shapiro is director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute and publisher of the Cato Supreme Court Review. He's the author of many publications, including most recently his new book, Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations, and the Politics of America's Highest Court. He filed an amicus brief on behalf of individual petitioners in this case. Ilya, it is always wonderful to have you on the show. Good to be back, Jeff. Let us jump into the question that the court began with, and that is the question of standing. Ordinarily, it's a technicality that we shy away from at the top of We the People, but the Chief Justice jumped right in, and quickly, both sides were talking about the theory of standing by inseverability. Ilya, disaggregate. What is the theory of standing by inseverability, and how did the court seem to respond to it? Right. Well, the the reason this is important is because, of course, the court doesn't issue advisory opinions. There has to be a live case or controversy. People coming into court have to actually be hurt by the government action uh, or or law that they're challenging. And so here, uh, this is why it's important that my brief supports only the individual petitioners, because there's two different theories of standing going on here. First, the individuals, Neil Hurley and John Nance, uh, who argue that, that they are subject to the mandate, even if there is a, a zero uh, tax or, or penalty attached to it, because they, by law, have to comply. And that's uh, that, that hurts them. Indeed, the, the mandate uh, still applies. It's not theoretical. It's not going into effect uh, in the future. Uh, more broadly, Texas, uh, the lead uh, 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 petitioners uh, in this case, and the group of states, uh, argue that uh, the mandate causes them to um, uh, uh, expand their uh, paperwork uh, filings and, and other um, costs associated with uh, uh, enrolling in Medicaid and, and other technical uh, issues. So the a lot of the discussion here was, first of all, uh, whether you can have standing if there's no enforcement mechanism, because again, this case is different than what the court took up eight years ago, uh, because Congress in the interim zeroed out that tax on which John Roberts uh, justified his, his uh, taxing power um, uh, justification for the individual mandate. And so if you do not comply with this provision that uh, uh, requires the purchase of insurance, uh, there is zero tax, zero penalty. The IRS won't go after you. Nobody can uh, go after you. 
uh, and nobody can go after the state. So there was a lot of questions, for example, for right off the bat from Chief Justice Roberts and, and Justice Thomas uh, of the California Solicitor General uh, asking, what if Congress passed a law requiring everyone to mow the lawn once a week? but with a $0 fine, would anyone have standing to challenge it? Or Justice Thomas asked uh, more topically if there was a mask wearing mandate with a $0 fine or tax attached, would anyone have standing uh, to challenge that? And then the government, the Solicitor General uh, uh, came in and had a kind of more complicated argument about standing, not that the mandate uh, hurt anyone, but that the mandate was because it's inseverable, inextricably connected to the rest of Obamacare, to the rest of the Affordable Care Act, uh, and the rest of that law hurt uh, people and states in various ways, uh, uh, they had standing uh, to challenge it. So um, I think this is might be the closest issue of them all, uh, and probably uh, the newest justice, Amy Coney Barrett, uh, is going to be the the deciding vote on this, on whether anyone, whether the states, the individual petitioners or anyone else has standing on this. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for explaining the two theories of standing. One is that people are hurt by having to obey a law, even if it's not enforced. And the second is that they're hurt by other parts of a law that become unconstitutional but can't be severed. And that's the theory of uh, standing by inseverability. Um, Abby, what can you say about the justice's reaction to both of those cases? And in particular, Justice Breyer seemed to get rather exercised for him about the standing by inseverability argument, suggesting that lots of laws have kind of hortatory provisions like mow the lawn or celebrate goodness, and many of them would become unconstitutional according to this theory. Yeah, great. So let me say a few things about that uh, in reacting to Ilya. Um, I think that it was interesting that the entire California Solicitor General's argument time was taken up by standing. I think people were surprised by that. Um, some people asked, why would the court be spending this much time on standing? Why is that so important? Well, obviously, it's a threshold issue that the court has to pass before they can uh, get to the merits. But also, you know, if you think about this case and all the different principles that are at stake, the standing questions have a lot of staying power. The Affordable Care Act, some of these questions may be unique to the Affordable Care Act or relatively limited on the fact. But these questions about standing are pretty important and have long-term implications. The standing of the states in the Supreme Court is a controversial topic. The court cares about that. And the standing by inseverability thing is very important. So uh, let me just break that down and go to Justice Roberts. So uh, with respect to the individuals, I think Ilya characterized it well. The question is sort of, can you be harmed by something that's not enforced? Chief Justice Roberts asked a really interesting question. Uh, if you don't buy health insurance and you have to check the box on an employment form, did I ever violate a law, not obey a law? Do you check yes or no? And if you check yes, is that some kind of harm? So that, that was a really interesting way of putting it. Um, then there's this question about this inseverability argument. And Justice Thomas, I think, was out in front on that. And, uh, you know, with these telephonic arguments, he's, he's really active. So it's, it's really great for a court watcher to see another justice's voice in the mix. And, you know, he's someone who doesn't love, who has expressed reservations about severability in the past. But he went right in and said, severability is a doctrine of statutory interpretation. It's the merits. It's not about standing. You could be expanding enormously the number of cases that could be brought into federal court if you allow a litigant to say an entire statute is tied together in a tight ball so I can challenge any piece, I can be harmed by any piece of it as long as there's some viable constitutional challenge to another piece. And, you know, he really characterized that as being extraordinarily aggressive 
uh, interpretation of standing and would really open the floodgates, they kept using the word floodgates, to litigation in the federal courts. And I think Elena Kagan did something also really interesting about that. She said, look at the modern context of legislation. We have tons of omnibus laws. If we adopt your theory of standing, we're going to be inviting litigation on virtually anything. You could be harmed by section 25 and bring it. And there's another challenge on section 1000. You can just run into federal court. So she really brought in the modern lawmaking context. Now, Justice Breyer, what was going on there? He got uh, unusually upset for him. He's very even keel. I think most people would not have even realized he was upset because he's always so even keel. But for him, he got pretty exercised. And this was an issue on which standing and the merits kind of conflate. So there's a discussion about whether um, a statute that doesn't have an enforcement mechanism is valid. And so it goes to the question of not only whether it can be harm, you can harm you, that's the standing question, but whether there's a constitutional basis for any statute that doesn't have an enforcement provision. And there's a dialogue with Justice Kavanaugh, where Justice Kavanaugh was suggesting that all of those precatory provisions are backed up by fines, they're backed up by sort of power. And Breyer got very upset and he said, have you looked through the whole U.S. code? Have you? And, the, you know, he gets the guy to say no. And then he says, well, I haven't either. And he says, but, you know, I worked in Congress and there are hundreds of statutes. It's hundreds of provisions on the books where you say you should name a, sta- a post office after this guy. You should celebrate this. You should do this. There are tons of them in there. And, you know, what, are all those invalid? You know, what's happening with all of those statutes? And I can bet you that some of Justice Breyer's law clerks are going to spend a long weekend in bed with the U.S. Code going through every provision, trying to find those provisions for him. Because he got pretty exercised at the idea that uh, the the challenges were saying those things don't really exist. Uh, Many thanks for that. And thanks to both of you for making standing thrilling. Jeff, just picking up on that one last point, I think that exchange with Breyer and the acting Solicitor General, Jeff Wall, my law school classmate, was interesting because there was discussion about shall versus should and how you parent your kids as a parent of a four-year-old and a two-year-old. This is very real for me. And, you know, if, if, if I tell my son, go to your room, go clean your room, go to bed, uh, you know, but there's no explicit or even implicit uh, enforcement penalty. I'm not going to, you know, spank him or, or deny him candy for not going to his room right this second. Is that really a, a, a command? So that I think uh, puts some flavor on or, or put, ma- makes, again, this uh, rather dry subject uh, uh, more tangible, I think. Well, th- thank you for that vivid example. And, and since you're, you're right to take another beat on it, I'll, I'll ask Abby, can you imagine the case being thrown out on standing? Yeah, I think what I think would likely to happen is that you're going to get a mix of votes where some people are going to want to go to the merits and throw the statute out on severability. I thought they saved the ACA on severability. But I do think we're going to go to several justices who are going to say there's no standing, or at least maybe with respect to some of the plaintiffs. I think that the court seemed more taken uh, with the individual plaintiffs' uh, positions on standing than with the state's. Um, I think all those questions about checking the box and mowing your lawn, uh, where at least some of the justices uh, were taken by that. Now, you know, some of the justices particularly will talk about this, but Roberts and Kavanaugh seem to have very strong views on the severability question. And the question is, are they going to want to say those views? You know, the question is, what kind of opinion are they going to want to write? Are they going to want to just knock it out on standing? Or are they going to want to say, I have something else to say here, too? And that's the problem with the standing opinion. They won't get to make those points. Um, if they don't have to write that opinion. Wonderful. Well, before turning to severability, let us go to the merits. And uh, several justices asked, now that uh, the mandate is zero, uh, if it can't be justified as an exercise of Congress's taxing power, what constitutional authority supports it? Ilya, tell us about the claim that because 
as Justice Kavanaugh noted, five justices in the NFIB case said that the Commerce Clause was not sufficient to support the mandate. Uh, therefore, there's no constitutional authority to support it. And tell us about the response that it was uh, a valid exercise of a taxing power, even if the t- penalty was zero. Right. So uh, recall what John Roberts did in ultimately upholding this provision and consequently the rest of uh, the statute eight years ago. He said that the most natural reading uh, of the individual mandate is as a mandate with a penalty for not complying it. However, uh, we have the obligation, the court does, he says, to uh, look at uh, to save uh, uh, statutes if possible Um, if there's a plausible or reasonable reading uh, in a different direction that could uh, just be justified with another uh, constitutional power. And and he said, uh, indeed, this can be read as a choice of either to buy uh, the health insurance or pay a tax. So this is a tax on non-purchase and therefore can be justified under Congress's taxing power. Well, Five years later, when Congress zeroed out that tax, uh, or would-be tax, um, there is no longer any revenue being raised, uh, and therefore that is one of the criteria for uh, finding uh, a justification under the taxing power. It's just a a clean mandate uh, without any tax attached. So whatever it is, you know, once you get past the standing issue. Uh, it can no longer be justified under the taxing power. Uh, Kavanaugh said this. Gorsuch made the same point. Um, the uh, he as he as he told uh, Don Verrilli, arguing for the House of Representatives, uh, the defenders of the ACA are left to rely on provisions in the Constitution that lost uh, last time. And John Roberts asked Verrilli, uh, "Well, um, you know, did we discuss broccoli for nothing?" Uh, and Verrilli, uh, because this was a, a, a hypothetical eight years ago of can Congress force you to buy uh, broccoli? And Verrilli kind of made this into the, the salad days of the argument, if, we w- if you will, saying that this is uh, a carrot that works without the stick. So it's, it's just a carrot. It, uh, the, the, the tax was not repealed. It's, uh, you know, the, it was justified. It, it can still remain as a zero tax uh, uh, in effect. Um, and, uh, and since it works, it, it, it can survive just as Breyer, um, uh, saw things a little differently than Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. He, uh, I think Abby mentioned this in our discussion of standing, uh, there's exhortations to buy war bonds or plant a tree, uh, without any, any mechanism to enforce them. And so are those all of a sudden, uh, unconstitutional because can't be justified under commerce clause or necessary and proper, uh, don't tax anybody, um, uh, and here, the Texas Solicitor General, who was uh, challenging the law, agreed that the government could make suggestions about activities it wants to encourage, but the individual mandate is different. It's not a suggestion. It's not an exhortation. It is a command, but an unusual one. And this is why this the court is taking this up. Uh, even if you have these kind of hortatory or suggestive uh, statutes, uh, it's hard to point to one that's a, an actual mandate or you know, a mandate, a choice of comply or pay a tax uh, where the thing, where the tax part or the penalty part, the monetary enforcement mechanism uh, has been uh, zeroed out. And then uh, Justice Kagan appearing to side with California and the House, um, she told the Texas Solicitor General Hawkins uh, that the court ruled that the mandate was not an unconstitutional command uh, and that the 2017 zeroing out made it less coercive 
by eliminating the penalty. Now, so there's a, a bit of a tension in, in, in fact, reading what John Roberts actually did in his transmogrification or recharacterization of the mandate uh, as a tax. And here in, in my brief, I, you know, I took the position that, uh, indeed, if, if, Robert, if there is no more tax, if there's no more raising of revenue, if there's no more choice of either comply or pay, uh, then it connote the taxing power is, is not there, whether it's a reasonable, plausible reading or, or not. And so you're left with the previous majority holding that it can't be justified otherwise. But ultimately, it will have to be up to Chief Justice Roberts to exactly explain uh, what he meant when, when he wrote that. Abby, so you just clearly uh, explained the position he argued in his brief, which, as he said, several justices seem sympathetic to, which is that if the mandate can no longer be justified as a tax, then it also cannot be justified under Congress's commerce power and therefore lacks constitutional support. Tell us about former Solicitor General Verrilli's response, namely that it, the power could be either inherent in the tax power or necessary and proper to it. And do address this fascinating shift. Uh, Ilya uh, just called it the salad days aspect of the case, where uh, previously, Verrilli, last time he argued the case, as Justice Thomas noted, had said that the mandate was necessary to make the whole scheme work. This time he said Congress is allowed to adjust its opinion based on experience, and it concluded it no longer was necessary. So tell us about that and its relationship to the merits arguments. Right. So um, I'm going to go to that part last, the carrots and sticks, because I really think he was just talking about severability there, and he wasn't talking about uh, the merits of the mandate's constitutionality in that exchange. Um, so I think with respect to, let's start with the mandate, the question of whether um, it's now it's an unconstitutional mandate. So what's very interesting is that Don really said, we're not making that argument. We are not arguing that this is valid under the commerce power. He did not want to go down that road with them. He didn't see that there are X number of votes or Y number of votes for one position or another, but he is saying that we can validate the mandate on different grounds. We're going to validate it either as a tax or as a precatory requirement that has, you know, no, no power behind it. Uh, with respect to the mandate argument, I think the one thing that was interesting was the newest justice, Amy Coney Barrett, um, was uh, quite uh, taken with the idea of saying that, well, this would be unconstitutional under NFIB, right? And so I think that there was sort of a uh, echo of her kind of desiring to go back and like not relitigate really NFIB, but kind of lock in the number of votes for the position uh, that uh, her old boss, Justice Scalia, did not win in that case, right? And so, I, I, you know, there were definitely, of all the justices, I think she was the one that was sort of referencing NFIB the most and sort of trying to, uh, she said at one point, well, we don't only had four real votes for that position in NFIB. And then the, the lawyer said, well, you know, you already have five, part of Justice, two Justice Roberts agree with you. And then there's a whole discussion about the votes, right? But she definitely seemed interested in that and trying to get some more words on the page about that ruling, sort of, I, I, I'm thinking of it as locking it in. Um, with respect to the taxing power, very interesting set of conversations among Sotomayor, Alito, and Gorsuch about whether uh, there can be a framework in place that a tax gets sort of dialed up and dialed down, even if it's temporarily zero. So both Alito and Gorsuch you know, alluded to this argument, how much they care about it isn't clear, but they definitely engaged on it. Sotomayor had a really interesting back and forth with counsel about, well, what if we set a tax and said it doesn't kick in for two years? So it's zero for the first two years. Is that a tax? He says, yes. He says, what if it fades down? Is that a tax? He says, yes. How long does it have to you know, not be zero for, for it not to count as a tax? So that was a very interesting set of exchanges. And Verrilli says, so it's either a tax or it's a tax in waiting. And the framework that sets up the tax uh, is uh, 
legitimate under the necessary and proper clause, right? And then the third argument, it goes back to the precatory thing that Justice Breyer got so excised about, exercised about, which is the idea that maybe it's a third thing entirely. It's not a mandate. It's not a tax. It's just a precatory provision that has no bite. And that this goes to Justice Breyer's point. There are lots of those provisions in the U.S. Code. And are you saying that hundreds of provisions are now unconstitutional because they don't have an enumerated power behind them? And we're really saying effectively, some things just don't need an enumerated power behind them. Things that are precatory are an example of that. And that got us into this exchange about, is it a shall? Is it a should? If it says shall, does it have an enumerated power? If it's a should, is it an enumerated power? If it has a fine behind it, does it have an enumerated power? Kavanaugh said, are any of those precatory provisions formally backed by a fine? There's a whole bunch of discussion about that. I think that if it gets down to that point, there are going to be some very nitty-gritty opinions looking through the U.S. code, looking for other kinds of provisions on that front. So let's go to salad, carrots, sticks, broccoli. Um, and there's a, maybe there's a bridge to severability, which is, you know, Brian, Roberts opens the argument and with really gets on, really is Obama's former solicitor general. In 2012, uh, he was in the court arguing on behalf of the Obama administration that the mandate was constitutional, but if it was struck down, they suggested that it be severed with two other provisions, two key insurance provisions, guaranteed issue and community rating. That was the position of the Obama administration because they were afraid the insurance markets would collapse without the mandate at the time. So Roberts cuts right to the chase. He says, Mr. Verrilli, we're talking about broccoli for nothing. Eight years ago, you told us this thing was essential, and now you're telling us we can live without it. You know, talk to us. And he sort of let's clear, basically, let's clear the air. And Verrilli gets in there and he says, yeah, you know, when Congress passed this law, they thought they needed a carrot and a stick for the law to survive. The mandate's a stick. And it turns out, over time, the stick isn't necessary. Congress has learned with the benefit of time that it only needs carrots. And 2017 Congress was free to alter the statute based on that conclusion. And that's where we are today. And it really doesn't matter what we said back in 2012, uh, because it's no longer relevant, given the intervening facts and the intervening legislative amendment. Thank you for that great uh, summary and uh, elucidation. Ilya, severability. First, define what it is for listeners who may not know what it is. Um, and there's no reason anyone should. Um, second, tell us about the law of severability and the case Sela law, which uh, is relevant. And then tell us why you argued in your brief that even though you believe that the mandate uh, may be unconstitutional, it nevertheless can be severed from the rest of the law and therefore the law can be upheld. Sure. Um Severability is a fancy legal term that simply means uh, can the constitutionally defective part of a broader law be cut out or how much of the rest of the law has to fall with it. And this is a prudential doctrine. Uh, that is, it's not something that uh, somewhere in the Constitution, uh, you know, originalists say this is the meaning of severability or uh, or, or the text uh, you have to interpret, uh, you know, sometimes in statutes, there is a severability clause, which says if any part falls, uh, you know, that's the only part that fall, it can be severed or some other formulation of, of a severability clause. Uh, here, that's that doesn't exist. And which is why uh, there was this discussion of, well, how is this different from eight years ago? Because uh, everybody accepts that it's not simply a do over. It's not uh you know, uh, NFIB versus Sibelius reconsidered with a different composition of justices because you this this interim uh, uh, event of Congress zeroing out the uh, tax penalty thing uh, without uh, changing the rest of the law um, gives courts an indication of 
what Congress uh, would like to have as a complete statute, because courts asked, asked two questions. First, uh, what of the rest of the law is uh, works without this defective provision? What is inextricably connected to it? Uh, and, and second, what would Congress have enacted? And they kind of have to get in Congress's heads a little bit. And this is why, for example, Justice Thomas doesn't like severability doctrine because he doesn't like legislative intent or trying to get at the purpose of a statute. He looks at the words of a page and if something's um, defective, then, then you know the whole thing falls and give Congress another uh, bite at the apple. Uh, and this is why, as Abby said, there was this uh, colloquy between Chief Justice Roberts and, and Don Verrilli, how last time around, well, we thought everyone understood that the mandate was at least very closely connected, at least this was what Verrilli, the Obama Justice Department uh, position was, it was connected to guaranteed issue and uh, minimum coverage, uh, the the kind of um, the, the the central core that enabled uh, to enable people with pre-existing conditions to be covered, uh, you had to you know th- that 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 requirement for healthy people to buy insurance that the carrot and stick had to be there. Uh, but now we see a that Obamacare, for better or worse, is in place. It is working, whether it's efficient, whether it's effective, that's a separate question. But it it's working, and Congress, when it had the chance to. Uh, shave off other uh, parts of it, along with zeroing out the tax, it did not do so. And that's why this is different. And that's why cross-ideologically, including Abby with uh, several uh, colleagues filed a brief, including challengers to the uh, to the Affordable Care Act eight years ago, filed a brief saying, well, this is a different case. Uh, uh, the rest of the law does not fall. It can, the, the, the mandate, even if it's, even if it falls, uh, the, the rest uh, can be Severed, and I generally agree with that. The one little caveat, and it's very technical and it's very legalistic, which is why I filed on this on the side of the individual petitioners, is that for Nance and Hurley, um, they buy insurance on the individual non-Obamacare exchange market. That is not with through their employer, not through you know Obamacare.gov, none of that. They they go to the individual market that has policies for people. Uh, and they're more expensive than they would otherwise be with all these this regulatory architecture on top of it. And so that's why they say they're harmed. And so the remedy for them, again, assuming they have standard, assume, assuming uh, standing, assuming the mandate falls, would be to cut out some of these other uh, regulations. That's the point of my brief. It's a very technical remedy point. It, from oral argument, it didn't seem like the court was interested in, in any, any of that kind of nuance. It looked like there were clearly probably six, if not more votes at least. Uh, some justices simply didn't speak on it uh, to, even if the mandate falls, to sever it from the rest of the law. Abby, tell us about the much-reported comments of Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh, which seem to suggest that they were sympathetic for severing the mandate. Um, do you agree with Ilya that there are at least six votes for severing? Uh, what votes do you see on the other side, and what arguments would those justices make uh, against uh, severing? Okay, great. Uh, let me say a few things by way of uh, background. So uh, it is true that there are some statutes that have severability clauses, but the professional drafters in the House and Senate, and this, those drafting manuals discourage uh, explicit severability clauses because the court applies a default strong presumption in favor of severability. As Justice Thomas said at oral argument, severability is this doctrine of statutory interpretation. Uh, 
be clear, it's part of the court's settled statutory interpretation doctrine. And while Ilya is correct that in the past, some justices, including Justice Thomas, have expressed some discomfort with the old formulation of the doctrine in the sense that it asked the court to kind of guess what Congress would have wanted, Justice Kavanaugh answered that question last term in his opinion in American Political Consultants versus Barr, in which he acknowledged that the old-fashioned severability inquiry was something of a rabbit hole, put you in an analytical rabbit hole, and he instead said, let's reformulate this more strongly as a doctrine, a strong presumption of statutory interpretation. We presume statutes are severable. The rest of them stand absent the offending provision unless Congress says otherwise. And you heard Don Verrilli in response to Justice Alito yesterday who said, how do we know if some members of Congress didn't secretly want to get rid of this thing and throw a poison bomb into the statute? And Verrilli says, first of all, that's not an appropriate assumption for this court to make about Congress. But second of all, the reformulation or strengthening of the doctrine last term, that's the whole point of a strong presumption. You don't have to guess what Congress wanted. You wait for Congress to tell you. Um, and so that's what the back and forth between uh, Kavanaugh and Roberts and the litigants were about. So Justice Roberts says, look, Congress got rid of the uh, penalty for the mandate, eliminated, zeroed it out, it left the rest of the statute standing. It spoke as clearly as it could in formal terms. Maybe they would wish that we would strike it down. Frankly, some of them probably hope we would. But he said, they didn't do that, and it's not our job. Right? A very strong statement by him on that. And then Kavanaugh put his cards right on the table and says, this seems like a very straightforward case for severability, you know, based on the arguments that Justice Roberts made. And then both of them um, really very forcefully rebutted the only argument that the challengers were really making. So while Ilya is correct that sometimes people do argue uh, when they are against severability that the statute can't function without the offensive provision, the litigants here did not do that because they can't. The evidence undermines that claim. They never argued functionality in their briefs. And actually, Justice Alito said, this is originally conceived as a critical piece of a plane. We've taken that piece out, and the plane hasn't crashed. So even Justice Alito said that in oral argument in a very vivid description. So the only thing they could argue is that Congress said otherwise. Congress dictated that, over, that the strong presumption should be overcome. And the, where they pointed to that was in the congressional findings that were enacted to support the mandate under the Commerce Power. When Congress enacted the mandate in 2010, it has findings to justify the use of the Commerce Power, as it always does. In those findings, it says the mandates are essential to interstate markets. The challengers pointed to that language and said, aha, Congress was telling us it was inseverable. It was essential. And Roberts and Kavanaugh say, not so fast. Those are Commerce Clause findings. And in fact, Congress knows how to write an inseverability clause. It does so very clearly in the U.S. Code. This isn't that you know, we're not buying it. So the liberals said nothing on severability. That basically gives you an obvious, you know, assuming they don't stop on standing, five votes, we assume, that are going to give you a severability ruling. Where the six vote could come from, if Alito's comment about the plane maybe is a tips his hand at all, uh, he might be the sixth vote. I don't, I'm not so sure. I wouldn't predict the last three. I think that Gorsuch was totally silent on severability. Barrett, despite all her talk of severability at the confirmation hearing, said nothing about severability. Justice Thomas, um, as I said before, interestingly sort of reaffirmed severability's adoption of statutory interpretation, even as he has um, played with reformulating the doctrine in other cases. So, you know, I think it's possible. I would, I would predict more that those justices kick the case out on standing rather than on severability. Um, and I do think we might see a repeat of the Thomas Gorsuch um, alternative formulation of the severability doctrine, which would be to just enjoin the offending provisions 
with respect to the litigants directly in front of them, rather than, as Justice Thomas says, blue pencil the statute. Uh, last term, Justice Kavanaugh rather strongly disputed the validity of that approach, and it's not necessarily clear that it would lead to a different result in this case. So we'll have to sort of wait and see where they come down. I would say five, maybe a six on separability. Uh, well, Ilya, um, do you see any votes for striking down uh, any parts of the uh, Affordable Care Act beyond the mandate, uh, including the ones that you questioned? And then more broadly, tell us about the significance of this severability debate as aspects of the regulatory state are challenged, as, as you do so uh, so uh, vigorously at, at, at Cato. Um, will the practical effect of these challenges be mitigated by the fact that this court is willing to sever out the offending provisions or, or not? Yeah, um, I'm actually, I seem to be more confident uh, in Abby's position than she is, and she's more confident in mine than, than I am, because uh, I think there'll be, there won't be a single vote uh, to uh, strike down the entirety of uh, of the law, uh, and I hope that uh, Thomas and and uh, and Gorsuch, uh, if not more, uh, will enjoin it with respect to the individual plaintiffs. I'll, that'll be two votes for my position, effectively. Uh, that would be great. Um, but uh, the, the the broader concern uh, is, uh, you know, we don't. Nobody spoke up in a sense that this cannot be severed. Uh, the whole the whole statute has to fall, as they did, as several justices did during the oral argument in NFIB. Uh, eight years ago. So again, this is a different case. And assuming there are at least five votes to get past standing, which I think there will be, because at the end of the day, the merits of the uh, mandate is sort of the same question as standing. If you if it's no longer a tax, uh, then it's a mandate, and therefore you have standing because you're subject to the mandate. I mean, it's, it's a very odd law in effect. I mean, John Roberts' saving construction eight years ago was a very odd formulation, and so this might be, uh, in that respect, a standing argument that I will agree with uh, uh, Jeff Wall, not on the inseverability standard, which may or may not open up the, you know, uh, to challenges of all sorts, uh, but at least in this particular way, when you have a previously taxing power justified statute that now can no longer be justified with that, but still has a command, then you have standing to challenge that mandate. So as uh, came out in a colloquy with John Roberts, Someone in the future won't be faced with the dilemma of if asked by the employer uh, to check a box saying, have you ever violated federal law? There was not a dilemma of, well, I'm not complying with this toothless mandate. What does that mean for me? So again, assuming, and I think there will be uh, uh, five votes for standing, at least five votes to strike down the mandate or to enjoin it or hold it inapplicable, unconstitutional. Uh, uh, After that, there will be, I think, six and possibly, probably uh, more, more likely to be nine than six, and f- for that matter, votes to uh, sever and or, or, or at least not to uh, invalidate the entire ACA. What that means for other broad-based statutes, whether in financial regulation, environmental or otherwise, uh, depends on how exactly both the standing and the severability arguments are written. Um, uh, I think in general, a lot of the justices in various contexts, you mentioned uh, Jeff Sala Law, which was an appointments clause uh, case uh, last term. Uh, and in other cases, the uh, severability comes up in different contexts. Uh, Abby men- uh, mentioned the uh, the robocalls, First Amendment case, uh, a political consultant versus bar. Uh, there, there's a majority of the court that is hesitant to invalidate entire laws. So I don't think uh, adding or, or replacing Ginsburg with Barrett changes that uh, majority. Abby, your responses to what Ilya just said, and then your broader reflections on what 
the holding in this case could mean for future challenges to the regulatory state, of which there may be many in a prospective Biden administration. It's quite possible that we will see uh, uh, the Supreme Court pitted against uh, regulations uh, passed by uh, Biden agencies. What significance could the severability and standing holdings in this case, if any, hold for those challenges? So first, let me just clarify something that Ilya said. Um, I, I don't um, absolutely do not think that there do not say that there'll be you know, no votes, that there'll be some votes to strike down the entire statute. Um, what I said was that I thought that there were five clear votes uh, that were interested in severability. Uh, I think that there'll be more justices who will find other ways to get out of the case. Some of them might be on severability, but some of them might be on standing. Um, I don't think, I think if there was one justice who might uh, strike the whole thing down, it might be Justice Barrett because she was so interested um, in revisiting NFIB. Um, but I think it would be a, a bold move for a brand new justice to be the one to center to strike the whole ACA down. So that would be interesting. Uh, I also say, think that, um, you know, the, I don't think it's crystal clear that um, the, uh, the, I think that it's possible that some of the more liberal justices are not going to want to endorse um, the, the, the broad theory of standing, even for the individual plaintiffs. So you might wind up losing some of those five severability votes if some of the liberals want to be a little narrower on standing for those individuals. So I just don't, I think it's a vote count issue. I think it's very, I feel very confident that the affordable character is going to survive. I feel less confident that the mandate will survive. And I don't think that matters very much on the ground. Um, but the exact calculation of votes um, seems a little less clear. So what does that mean for the future of the regulatory state? Um, you know, on the one hand, I found the argument extremely encouraging in the sense that it seemed to actually be uh, focused on how Congress acted and what Congress did and how Congress legislates, uh, which is what I write about a lot. And I was very happy to see justices interested in thinking about the realities of the workings of Congress. I think whatever Congress we have, however it's uh, constituted, it's a good thing for the court to be focused on uh, looking to how Congress actually writes legislation and, and what it intends. Um, I don't think it's, I don't think it tells us much about uh, you know, administrative challenges uh, as we enter a world in which perhaps some Trump regulations are repealed and new Biden regulations are replaced, other than I do think uh, the standing uh, arguments are going to be important in that context. And that is why I think the court spent 30 minutes on standing in the beginning, because as I said before, that's the uh, decision with the long tail here. Those, whoever comes out of those standing holdings uh, is going to have a broader effect than just whatever happens to the ACA. Uh, I don't think we're done with the ACA and the Supreme Court. I think that we're likely to have more regulatory challenges. There are a whole bunch of things happening with the ACA, presumably uh, contra the contraception mandate that, uh, that Trump passed, that his version will be gone. Biden might have another one. We'll see a bunch of reruns of various ACA regulatory challenges that may come back up. I don't think we're in a constitutional world with the ACA after this, but you know there are a ton of regulations, and I think we may well see those coming back. Um, although I, I, we're all getting tired of these ACA challenges, and it'd be nice to move on to uh, a different topic. I do think one thing you can take um, from the argument is if there were any doubts, I don't think there was, is this NFIB holding on the Commerce Clause. You know, there do seem to be, um, you know, even with the new concept, the three new justices who have since replaced uh, the justices since NFIB, you know, there seems to be a majority on the court uh, that has concerns about, you know, broad use of Commerce Clause power. And uh, especially when it's regulating things that are, you know, even questionably related to the market. Although I would have argued, I argued that, you know, 
failure to buy health insurance truly is part of the market, but we lost that battle. And I think that um, in thinking about legislation and regulation going forward, um, as the as the government has been since NFIB, that Commerce Clause ruling is going to have to be in the back of everybody's mind and thinking about how to structure uh, laws that are going to last. And the irony of all this, of course, is that taxing is probably the safest way to go uh, after NFIB and politically always harder. Ilya, Abby just suggested there might be more challenges to the ACA on the horizon. Are you cooking any up and what might they look like, um, statutory or otherwise? And then let me ask you uh, what you made of Justice Barrett's questions. Um, She'll obviously be crucial in these cases. She seemed quite interested in the details of regulation. She asked, you know, in this case, you have to certify whether you've complied or not, and the government keeps track of that, whether or not you purchased health insurance. Does that change your view of the injury? Um, did you detect in her a, a, a justice who might be sympathetic to your future uh, challenges to the regulatory state or not? Huh. Um, well, I don't know if you're giving me uh, uh, too much credit. I've, I'm a simple friend of the court. I support other people's challenges. But uh, I think this is the last uh, existential uh, challenge that we'll see. Certainly, whenever you have a major piece of legislation, I mean, it goes on for decades that you have challenges to various regulatory parts, subparts, how things work, interpretations, and and, and so forth. Um uh, and, and, you know, we, we still have litigation over the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, and, and different other, you know, provisions. Uh, Sarbanes-Oxley, you know, is 20 years old now. So we're, we're going to uh, certainly have healthcare litigation, which a- after a while, I mean, it's no longer Obamacare. This is the, the healthcare code, healthcare, you know, federal law. Uh, that, that is not going to stop. But I, I don't see any more uh, existential challenges. Indeed, this, this whole challenge itself uh, is my, my colleague, Michael Cannon, the director of Cato's Health Policy Studies, calls it uh, trolling John Roberts. Um, you know, I, I, he disagrees with uh, my standing argument and, and you know, the, the part about the individual plaintiffs, whatever. Um, uh, he calls the entire suit uh, meritless. Um, you know, I, obviously we have that disagreement, but I do agree that it's very much saying, oh yeah, uh, Chief Justice, you think it's a tax? Well, how about this zero? How do you justify it now? And even knowing that it's very unlikely for all of it to fall, it's kind of, you know, calling his bluff on that and seeing what he does with it, with that, uh, what I called at the time a unicorn tax, a creature of no known constitutional provenance that will never be seen again. And indeed, as Abby said, uh, all future expansive powers have to be called uh, a tax and run politically uh, through the gauntlet of, of, of the use of a tax, which is harder than a regulation rather than this bait and switch of saying it's a regulation, but then justifying it legally uh, as a tax. As far as Justice Barrett, I mean, I think this, uh, what we saw, puts def- put, puts paid to uh, all of the demagoguery during her confirmation process over uh, 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 Judge Barrett, now Justice Barrett, uh, being the deciding vote of whether to uphold or invalidate Obamacare, whether tens of millions of people were, will lose their health care. I mean, that was transparently electioneering. It was either disingenuous uh, by those senators and other activists or simply a demonstration that they didn't understand the case. Um, I, I don't see Justice Barrett being uh, uh, voting to invalidate the entirety of the law. I'm sure she would have in 2012, um, agreeing with Scalia for the, the reasons explained by the joint dissent, uh, those four votes there. Uh, but now it's a different case. So I see her uh, uh, like Kavanaugh, probably like Robert, certainly like uh, Alito, 
um, uh, saying that it's uh, it's uh, the mandate falls, but it's severable. Abby, what did you make of Justice Barrett's interesting questions? And what do you think it said about how she might uh, fall both in this case and in future cases involving regulation? Thank you for that. Um, first of all, I did not say that all expensive legislation has to go through the taxing clause. What I said was that uh, now that we have a bunch of justices who seemed aligned with the dissenters and NFIB on the specific Commerce Clause question there, um, Congress can have to think about similar mandates to the NFIB mandate under that rubric. I, I don't think the Commerce Clause is dead, far from it, um, but I don't think that you can say that NFIB is gone just because some people have died, because um, Scalia is not with us and Kennedy is off the court. Um, so that's what I said about that. With respect to Justice Barrett, um, I, I, I respectfully disagree that the concerns that were raised um, about the Affordable Care Act case in advance of the case were disingenuous or, or lacking in knowledge. Uh, I think that 10 years of watching this statute, which is the most contested statute in American history, there are 1,700 cases pending in the lower courts challenging it. Okay, it's just, yesterday was the seventh case in eight years. So I don't, and we've had now uh, this frivolous challenge and what some thought was not a frivolous challenge in 2015, but which I did think was a frivolous challenge in 2015 as a matter of statutory construction being brought against the statute. So having watched this for 10 years, I don't think um, anyone was wrong to be concerned um, about the changing changing composition of the court and how it might affect the act. I do think that Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Breyer's opinions from last term on severability um, had what were helpful in predicting how they would go on this, but a new justice changes the court, changes the tone, changes the composition, changes the feeling, changes the atmosphere. And I do think that Justice Barrett's comments yesterday indicated that, she, as Ilya said, that she would have struck down the statute in 2012. That would have been a fifth vote had the court been exactly the same, but for that switch. And I heard her saying several times that she sort of wanted to go back and relock in that holding uh, as part of her, uh, as part of yesterday's case. So um, with respect to anything else, I don't think we can see anything else. So unlike Roberts and Kavanaugh, she didn't seem interested in severability. So that tells me you know, nothing much, but it gives me a hint that maybe she's not so interested in statutory interpretation. We don't know where she is on the administration, or ad law, Chevron. She did teach uh, some seminars on legislation at Notre Dame. I was surprised she didn't say anything at all about severability. Um, and so I don't think it's held us very much. I think we're going to have to wait and see uh, where she is on some of these cases and, and really get a flavor for uh, how she approaches administrative law. Uh, it's different. She has, she was not on the DC circuit. Um, D.C. Circuit judges tend to be more favorable towards Chevron going in um, than judges who did not have that experience on the D.C. Circuit. And so I would not be surprised if she uh, moves to narrow. But I think we don't have any information that really gives us uh, a clue either way. Uh, One last question before closing arguments. Um, Ilya, uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, for whom Abby clerked, was very uh, concerned about uh, Chief Justice Roberts's argument about the Commerce Clause in the NFIB case. And she strongly objected to it as a misconstruction of the Commerce Clause and suggested that it would come back to strongly limit Congress's power. Um, Both of you suggested Justice Barrett might uh, well be with the chief and the conservatives on the Commerce Clause. As someone who challenges federal regulations, in what ways will you use that vision of the Commerce Clause? And um, how significant do you think these Commerce Clause challenges will be to regulations in the future? 
Well, it largely depends on whether the government tries anything so unprecedented as uh, mandating commerce in order, in order to regulate it. Um, we could see that potentially with a mask mandate, um, although it, 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 I, I don't know if, if President-elect Biden is going to uh, try to do that as a direct uh, mandate rather than working with states or enforcing it uh, to the fullest extent on federal lands and federal buildings and interstate uh, travel and, and things like that and kind of letting the states fill in the gaps, uh, which would be fine. Um, but, um, what, what Justice Barrett, I think wants to lock in, uh, to pick up on what Abby was saying is that commerce clause and necessary and proper clause holding, uh, what was novel about NFIB wasn't that it was a, a, a big law. It was that, uh, unlike in the courts, uh, to just restate, uh, the, the litigation from eight years ago, unlike the courts, commerce clause presidents, precedents, which were so expansive that, uh, Federal, the Congress could reach even uh, in-state uh, non-commerce, uh, as uh, Justice Scalia put it, uh, for uh, growing marijuana in your own backyard for your own personal use. Um, but to actually, you know, this was one step further. And so um, I don't know if Congress is ever again going to uh, try that kind of uh, breathtaking expansion of federal power. Um uh, you know, certainly if you try to do it under the taxing power, that's politically much more, uh, much more difficult. So, um, but that, that's, that's what that means. Uh, it's not a matter of, of, you know, spending a lot of money or creating new regulations, um, under, under existing precedent, under Wickard versus Filburn from 1942, under Rach versus Gonzalez in 2005, we've gone from wheat to weed, uh, and that gives, uh, an expansive federal power, uh, already under which plenty of, uh, environmental financial and, and other, uh, regulations, uh, have, uh, historically been justified without having to disturb NFIB. Abby, if you could channel Justice Ginsburg, that would be much appreciated. She was strong in her partial concurrence and dissent in NFIB. She expressed great concern about the future of the regulatory state. Uh, what was she concerned about and, and in what ways might this narrow reading of the Commerce Clause uh, uh, fulfill her concerns? So if I channeled her, we would be here all day because I'd have to speak very, very slowly. Um, and I would have to choose every word with extraordinary care, which she did so beautifully all the time. Um, so, um, you know, I, I think we've sort of, we've covered the landscape. I think that um, she took, first of all, took Congress at its word and respected the view of Congress that failure to buy health insurance uh, was indeed uh, a, a market a problem in the market, a decision, uh, a decision that was economic in nature and did affect interstate commerce. So there was a bottom line factual dispute in NFIB about how to understand those those individuals who forego health insurance but still get their health care in emergency rooms and all the other places that are in the market. Um, and I think that part of her concern was deference to Congress and deference to Congress's fact finding. Um, I think another part of her concern, and this also came out in the Medicaid ruling in NFIB, was um, you know, wanting to allow the federal government to regulate in different ways and ways in which it saw fit. She said in the Medicaid ruling, look, they could repeal the Medicaid program and reenacted the whole thing as a federal law, as a national law, and then it would have been fine. Uh, is this the way we want to force Congress to regulate, to sort of forego these relationships and forego these different kinds of regulatory schemes? So I think she was concerned about that. And she was concerned, concerned about an artificial curtailing 
a federal power. And she's always concerned about you know, the federal government's role in making sure that all Americans of all walks of life, including those less fortunate, you know, were taken care of by the federal government. She sees the federal, saw the federal government as an important protector of sort of floor level dignitary rights filling in or even preempting where states should not, you know, live up to the task. So I think that she's always concerned of that, concerned about that. Um, going forward, you know, I, obviously she would have been concerned as many other liberal justices were about the future of the regulatory state, delegations to administrative agencies, um, you know, and how the new majority of the court is going to face those questions. You've already seen a desire to scale back uh, delegation little by little over the past several years. I was teaching my administrative law unit and legislation today and teaching all of these cases. Um, and, you know, I think that we're going to have to see how the next few years develop. And I think it's going to be important to know where Justice Barrett is on those topics. Justice Gorsuch came to the court with writing on delegation. We knew where he stood when he came to the court. Justice Kavanaugh also came to the court with writing on Chevron, being more pro-Chevron uh, than Gorsuch was when he came on the court. We don't really have much information on where Amy Coney Barrett is on those issues. And I think it's going to be very important uh, to sort of watch her and see what happens as it develops. Well, it is time for closing arguments in this extremely illuminating discussion. Uh, Ilya, the first one is to you. Uh, uh, how do you think the court will decide the Affordable Care Act case and how should it decide it? Well, to, to sum up, um, the there will be standing. They will reach the merits, or at least a majority of the justices will, uh, and declare that the remaining mandate, such as it is, is unconstitutional because can no longer be justified under the taxing power, uh, and then sever it from the rest of the law, uh, and so not touch any of the uh, part of the Affordable Care Act that's uh, currently operative. Um, uh, if uh, Justices Thomas and Gorsuch uh, concur separately to uh, enjoin some or all of the rest of the law with respect to the individual petitioners uh, in this case, Nance and Hurley, uh, that I, I would take that personally as a moral victory because that's, that's the point of, of my brief. Uh, I'm not holding my breath necessarily uh, on that. Uh, but at the end of the day, I don't think, here's my ultimate prediction, when we're thinking about October term 2020, I don't think California versus Texas and this latest and last existential challenge to Obamacare will be one of the major cases that we'll be thinking about. Abby, the last word is to you. How will the court decide the Affordable Care Act case and how should it decide it? I think until it comes down, um, a lot of people who care about health care, one fifth of our economy are going to feel that it's major, just to be sure. So I think, again, I think that no one's are going to be able to rest easy. And I don't mean just ACA supporters. I mean the entire healthcare industry until that ruling comes down. Um, but I do think we will probably have um, at least one or two justices that does not reach the merits that decides the case on standing. I would suspect we have something like five, six, maybe seven votes on severability. Um, I think that we don't know if Alito... Uh, would go with the severability group. I think that he might. I think Barrett is sort of the wild card. Um, I think Gorsuch and Thomas, if they find standing, and I think that's an if, uh, they might well enjoin, uh, as Aaliyah says, with respect to the plaintiffs. I think it's a big deal 
if they find standing only with respect to the individuals and not to the states, because in joining the Affordable Care Act's operation with respect to all the red states or even all the red and blue states is a much bigger deal than joining it with respect to offending provisions with respect to the individuals. And I'm curious to know if Barrett goes along with that reformulation of severability or if she's going to align herself as she claimed at the confirmation hearings with sort of the bread and butter settled doctrine, the strong presumption in favorability. How do I think it should come out? Um, I, you know, I uh, would, well, I, I have concerns about the standing doc, doc, doctrine arguments. And so part of me would like to see the case thrown out on standing alone. Um, I agree with Michael Cannon on many of those arguments. Another way which this case makes strange, bedfellow, strange bedfellows, as John Adler and I have said many times. However, uh, as a statutory interpretation professor, just delighted with the court's understanding of the severability doctrine, it's reading the statute, and it's reading of the findings, and it'd be lovely to have a strong statutory interpretation case to assign to our students going forward to teach them uh, about this whole exercise. Thank you so much, Ilya Shapiro and Abby Gluck, for a reasoned, nuanced, and extremely illuminating discussion of California versus Texas, the Affordable Care Act case. Ilya, Abby, Thank you so much. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Elia. Good to be with you. Today's show was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Mac Taylor, Ashley Kemper, and Lana Ulrich. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts. And also check out Live at the NCC, which is our companion podcast, which runs the great town hall programs that the National Constitution Center is running nearly every week. Um, so eager to share them with you. And always remember, friends, in these polarized times, don't you feel as I do that these civil constitutional dialogues are more important than ever? They bind us with the light of reason and they provide a common discourse for this divided country. Um, and that's why it's so meaningful to learn with you every week. And that's why I am so encouraged when you Write to me and please consider joining the National Constitution Center to signal your commitment to our shared mission. You can support it by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount, even a dollar, to signify your moral support of our crucially important project of reason. Uh, and you can do that at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen. Rosen.